I'm going to start off by saying this with biblical womanhood. I'm a man. That should be obvious. I'm going to now preach on womanhood, um, which can present some difficulties in any room when someone that like doesn't have personal experience as being something is now going to kind of appeal to an authority outside of myself, which is the Bible, to kind of get us all straight and good, okay? So, I just so you don't know this, no, a lot of you don't know this about me. I grew up in the household of a single mother until I was about 12 years old, and she raised me and my very strong-willed older sister. So lots of my childhood was surrounded by strong, uh, passionate, perseverant women. And in fact, it is that kind of person that has had more impact on me than any male or female, is a strong woman. So I, I want you to know this, like, I'm all for strong women, okay? So when we get into this, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to put some defense mechanisms around me, okay? I'm all for the strength of women. Matter of fact, I think the Bible is for the strength of women. Carol is here. I love you, Carol. Why are you sitting back there today? You need to be up here. It's all right. You just scream at people. It's fine. Um, so I'm just letting y'all know that that's kind of where we're at, right? Is, is this, it's a bit like, I don't want to say awkward, but it's, it's kind of off-putting. If I was a woman, I would go, okay, so why is there, there not a woman t- telling us about this? Well, because uh, the scriptures uh, would seem to indicate that the role of a man is to preach, teach, exercise authority over this community of any uh, spiritual community. That's the role of an elder. That's the role of a pastor. And so we, we lean into the scriptures that are sometimes even difficult for us to obey. Uh, because I have said this once, I've said it a thousand times, there are many women that I think are highly qualified to be able to stand here and tell you many things. But I also know that the Bible is pretty clear on this. And so we lean on the scriptures even when it's a little bit awkward for us. So here's this happy medium is, I hope it feels uh, it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable to know this, that there's been a council of women that I have consulted all throughout the week to help me understand, hey, am I checking this right? Is this totally off? What do you think about this? Okay, I think I hear what you're saying is this. What do you think about this? And they've all kind of just spoken into the process, so many of the words that I will speak will not be quoted to them because I don't think that's fair to them. Instead, I'm, I'm using a lot of their thoughts to help kind of drive us today. And so I'm just kind of the relay person at the same time, not of them, but of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures and for us today. So that's my big caveat for the day. And everybody seems to still be dialed in. Perfect. All right, so look, we talked about this last week. Um, I'm mirroring in many, t- in many ways um, our conversation a couple of weeks ago about biblical manhood. And when we, we started on biblical manhood, we looked at kind of what sociologist Brene Brown talked about with manhood. But these are the four things that we talked about with biblical manhood, that we would be a, a people, a, a, a gathering of men specifically, that would resist our culture. And that we would resist gender inequality. We would resist gender neutrality. We would resist this pursuit of perfection. And then we would resist this call for us to be passive, right? Those are the things we talked about with biblical manhood. And so today, we're drawing again upon a summary statement of what Brene Brown has said about the pressures of women. And this is her summary statement of women. This is what she says. For the pressures of of women in our culture, in our day, in this country, it says this. Do it all. Do it perfectly and never let them see you sweat. I don't know if that is a pressure that is, that, is, that is mounting on the females in the room, but I know this. I've got two daughters that feel that at 8 and 10. They feel the pressures of do it all, have enough friends that you can have and call yourself popular, be able to succeed at whatever it is that you put your name in the hat on. 
And that's been a lot of this year for our school years. My eight-year-old daughter going for the first time not getting picked for things and just dealing with the failure that comes with that. Because all of a sudden, she's trying to do some things, not all things, but do some things. She's not going to do it perfectly, and all of a sudden, that, that there's some failure that comes with that. There's some pressure that comes with that. Do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. So not only is that unattainable, but it also fuels for us these conflicting expectations of what and how you are supposed to do it all, what and how you're supposed to do it perfectly, and what and how you're supposed to do it without doubting or sweating along the way. But this is the world that we live in. This is the air we breathe. This is the feed that you glue your mind to every day. Do it all, do it perfectly, never let them see you sweat. The result here is that there is pressure on women that is absolutely crushing. And it seeps into your attitude because it's these conflicting expectations that you are neither to be rude nor are you to be quiet. And instead, you are to be perfectly in tune with an appropriate tone of timing and content. Your appearance is not to be too modest because then you're a prude and not to be too provocative because then you're a floozy. No one uses the word floozy anymore. We need to bring, to bring that back. Can we bring that back? Neither too prude or neither too modest or too provocative because you've got to be perfectly somehow, perfectly both. When you care for your family, if you love Jesus, you will feed them organic. <laughs> and if you really love Jesus, you're going to do keto. <laughs> but you don't do it too much, otherwise you're too controlling. Your hobbies, well, you better be a professional Pinterester. You better craft. You better have a side hustle of oils, leggings, wine, or cosmetics. And if you don't have a side hustle, you better ensure your house looks like Joanna Gaines decorated it. You add to these the competing expectations and the growing number of loud voices that say these things in our culture. This is, again, a mirror of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. All authority is bad authority. All submission is degrading to a woman. All power that is male uh, is bound to be abused if you would just give it enough time. The result is a culture of comparison, of unfulfilled expectations, of shoulds and oughts that drive you far more than you know. Bearing fruit and discontentment, gossip, and devotion to self-empowerment. The result is a lack of safe spaces, to be honest, and the rapid rise in the use of antidepressants. The world around us is rough. Whether you're a man or a woman, that is the truth. And so I just want to pause. I just used, I want you to misunderstand something. If you, if you have a need for antidepressants, go and use it. If I have a need for Advil, I'm going to go and use it. If I have a need for hydrocodone after a surgery, I'm going to use it. Okay, so this is not a, a, a statement about antidepressants. Instead, I think God gives us mercy through science and through pharmaceutical uh, advances. So if that's something that you need, man, praise God. Like, dig into that. Be limited. Realize your limits. It seems like we talked about that last week. That's an indictment on our culture. It's not an indictment on anyone that is using any antidepressants. I just want you to hear that. But that's the world that we're in. It's tough. There's, it's pressurized. It's do it all, right? This is exactly what Brene Brown has found. Do it all. Do it perfectly. Never let them see you sweat. So how is it that, that God's daughters will set themselves apart? 
What, what would it look like? See, this is what our culture needs. Our culture needs women who are deeply rooted in what God says about them, not what their Instagram feed says about them. We need to understand, we are, my wife needs to, to hear this a, a day in and day out. My daughters need to hear this day in and day out. You need to be reminding yourselves day in and day out that you are rooted in Christ. That you are purchased by the blood of Jesus. Rooted in that truth. And that truth does last longer than Instagram. Does last longer than whatever dings you get through Facebook. Our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, they need to see the kind of women who are not stuck in an emotive Christianity, but one that is deeply rooted in theological truths. That way we will not be tossed to and fro with the latest speaker, with the latest blog, with the latest Bible study teacher, or the latest bad opinion that's being circulated. We need women who will live with the deep conviction of their God-given identity, unequaled worth, and unique design. So let me just dig into this. Dig into these realities. This, is, this first part is just really a retelling of what we told through our biblical manhood. But first things first is that you need to know this, ladies, that you were created absolutely equal with men. You are created with equal dignity, equal worth, with men, in the image of God. You bear the image of God. If we go to the scriptures and we go to that first page in the Bible, Genesis 1, 26 and 28, through 28. This is what it says, right? This is the cultural mandate. This is what God said, not just about males, but about females. Then God said to them, let us, let, let Father, Son, and Spirit make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what did God do? He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And he blessed them, y'all. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was given equally to both male and female. There is an equal uh, equality, uh, there's an equal worth, equal dignity that comes with both male and female to represent God on the earth as image bearers of God, to rule over the earth, bring, bring out of chaos some order, and then to multiply, to bear fruit. You and I cannot bear fruit physically, much less spiritually. We cannot bear fruit physically without a complementary design that God has for males and females, and yet there's an equality there. Genesis 2.21, we just read it. So there's equality in God's mandate, in his, uh, in his cultural mandate for all people. In 2.21, what do we see? We, we turn over. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place. He took a rib, or more specifically, out of his side. It's an equal part, both in distance to the ground and to the top. It's also not in front, so the woman is not in front. It's also not in back. There is a specificity about how God designed both male and female. This couldn't be more equal for females to men. 
And God is specific in his design of things. Genesis 2, 23, what do we see? Humans, like a human's first words are in 2, 23. And it is Adam bursting forth in celebration that there's someone that looks exactly like him. There is a, there's a complimentary image bearer right before him. 2, 23, the, the first part. This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She looks like me. She feels like me. This is, this is just, this is woman though. This is not me. This is something quite different. But they're the same. She's come from me. She looks like me. She feels like me. She's of the same worth and quality as me. She is the perfect partner. Female to male. So that's like, that's just a recap of what we talked about for biblical manhood is where we started So let's dig into not just this equality, but also the unique design that not just males had that we talked about last time of leading, but now females. What is this unique design that God has put before women? Men and women were absolutely created equal, and yet we have uh, God-designed complementary roles. The more I read the Bible, I'm going to drop out some some labels. If you don't know what they are, it's fine. We can talk after this. The more I read the Bible, the more I am a complementarian uh, more than anything in regards to uh, biblical roles of manhood and womanhood in the home and in the church. So if you need to know where we stand on that, if that's like your, 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 your itch that you've got to scratch, that's where we're at. The more I read the Bible, the more I realize that we are equal in worth and dignity and yet absolutely distinct and different. So women, ladies, you were built uniquely by God. Males and females were created equally by God and yet uniquely designed and built by God. So I just want to read 2.18 through 20 once again. Here it goes. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So Adam, with his work and his God in the garden was insufficient design for God. God says, this isn't good. This is the only thing that he said in the garden before the fall that was not good was that man was alone. I want you to hear that. It was always a part of God's good design to bring female along for a specific reason. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see that he would call, see what he would call him, call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock of the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a fa- not found a helper fit for him. So God's good design, if I could, I want to use three words that are here in the text. And I want to go in, in reverse order that they're talked about. So the first word that I think is helpful for us to understand and why I'm saying that you are built uniquely by God is this word in verse 22 where it says in your Bible, it probably says uh, made. Verse 22 says this, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. That, That word for made uh, is banah in the Hebrew. You need to know that for what reason I don't know, but you have it now. And it literally means to build. And the, the, the connotation behind this word is different than what was used for Adam in 2.7 where it says the Lord God formed the man from the dust. Here, he's building something. Not just forming something, he's building something. There's connotations here of an architected and specifically uh, beautiful design of stability and durability. So, 
If you hear nothing else, I want you to go there and go, this is God's design, architecture of beauty, stability, and durability for the female. You're going to probably need to come back to that in a little bit and go, okay, I thought he said that. I think that's still there. Trust me now and you'll hear it later. He's built, built for the man. This other word of fit in Genesis 2, 18 and then 20, it says that he did not have a helper fit for him. 20 again, he did not have a helper fit for him. This idea for being fit uh, is another Hebrew word. It, it means suitable or corresponding to, complementary to the male. So in a blog near you is a misrepresentation of this word. It does not mean in front of. It does not mean superior to. Those are misrepresentations of a Hebrew word that is very clear. It does mean in correspondence with. Fit. Specifically designed to complement the other. See, equality and yet different. You guys seeing this? Hopefully. Custom fit. For the man. So you see this, and the context here is this, that Adam, uh, God has said that it is not good for Adam to be alone, and then like we have a verse there of where God parades all of creation before Adam to name them, and at the end of this parade of all of creation, now Adam knows there isn't one that's properly fit for him. And so God says to Adam, go to sleep, my man. When you wake up, your life is going to be changed forever. <laughs> go to sleep. He wakes up, and no wonder he wakes up to this beautifully formed, built, architected, fit for him woman, and he's like, yeah, baby, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, not the rhino or the elephant or the hippo or the dog. This one right here, fit for me. I would have celebrated too. Thank God for Adam. He celebrates. And what does he see? He sees this word. He sees a helper. This word for a helper fit for him, specifically designed to complement him. This word for helper is azer. Azer. It is not demeaning, but listen to this. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. An azer is one who supplies strength where the other one is lacking. One who supplies strength where the other one is lacking. Okay, so this is, some, this is some beautiful stuff. If you think that being an azer, a helper, is somehow demeaning, you're not doing good Bible study. Instead, what we need to do is go look at other places that the Old Testament uses the word azer. And over and over and over again, do we see that word being used for God himself? So if you think it's demeaning or degrading to be an azer as a female, then you must also think it was demeaning or degrading for God to be called azer, helper. And that simply does not run through a good line of logic. Instead, we know that God is not demeaned. Instead, he stoops and he helps his people. To get a good understanding of this, we see this in 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. The Israelites are trying to take back the ark from the Philistines. And Samuel uh, basically says this about, uh, to them. They're, they're, in a, they're in a constant kind of state of fear and anxiety. And yet they're, they're attacking and, and there's weakness there, and they're warring against their enemies, the Philistines. And Samuel says this, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he called its name Ebenezer, stone of help, strength helping, stone of help, Ebenezer. 
For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. Azer, he has helped us. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He's our protector, but he's our help. The Lord is our help. See, I pray that we would not give in to the lie that this biblical uh, distinction of women would not be demeaning or degrading or devaluing to you. Instead, I pray that we can lean into this truth. Here's how it's worked out in my family uh, this week. Moses is a male. Ellie is a female. Ellie is older than Moses, but Moses likes projects, y'all. I mean, dude doesn't like a bike. I live across the street from a park, and I can't get him to go there. Dude likes some projects. And so what does he do? Can you come help me with my project? Can you come help me with my kite? Can you come help me with my wand? Can you come help me with whatever, drums? Can you come help me make a guitar? He wants to make everything. If it's in the recycling bin, it's actually going to end up on my dining room table. Because he's going to make something out of that. So if Ellie's there, and Ellie's usually the one that responds to his call for help, if Ellie's there, is she demeaning and degrading and devaluing herself if she goes and helps her little brother? Or is she honoring him? Is she entering into his world to do his thing? There's no devaluing or demeaning. No, she is instead, she's honoring him. She's helping him. In a place of weakness, he can't do the tape. He can't do the staples. He can't do the glue. He, she can, and so she is able to fill a need that he lacks. She's helping. We see this over and over again, right? I mean, this is the absolute essence of the incarnation of Jesus. Like, women, if you want a good understanding of, of femaleness, look to Jesus, Look to Jesus and what he did. He's the ultimate man and yet represented womanhood in this way. That he stooped to help his people. He came down from heaven to earth to help. And he didn't demean himself. Let me explain it this way. I'll read Philippians 2. See, the world's narrative is this, that to be a helper is to be a slave. To be a helper is to diminish your worth. And instead, Jesus is going to throw down the narrative that he embraced helping as the king of the universe who could have designed this to go any other way. He does this, Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God. Hear this, ladies. Hear this, females. Hear this, men. Did not count equality with God as something to just hold on to and grasp with all of his might. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And there wouldn't have been any other worse death there could be. That's why it's just even to that point, that's how obedient Jesus became to his father's will, his father's design, his father's timing. That he could have done it a million different ways, but he chose it this way. He could have created females from the dust too, but he didn't. He created the female from the man. So there's, there's design in this. There's purpose in this. There's intentionality in this. And Jesus was not demeaned or devalued or defaced in any way when he did this. Instead, the next verse says this. 
Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What happened when Jesus took on the form of helper was that he was exalted by the Father. Because he was humble enough to understand God's design, he was brought high, exalted. What a beautiful truth. Surely there's something that we can learn from that. So here's what I want you to hear. This idea of helper. Don't like hear, uh, you know, the cleavers. If you're old enough to have seen any of Leave it to Beaver. Instead, what I hope and pray that you will see and help is that it can happen in a lot of different ways. Inside the home, outside the home. If helping your husband means in going, getting a second income, go and get that second income. Helping can be a lot of different ways. In the home, outside of the home, what matters is this, that when you help, you are providing strength where he lacks. And you are doing it in conjunction with and in submission to your husband and not against him. Helper fit for him isn't this helper who's providing strength because he's ultimately weak. Instead, you are equal. So whereas the divine design for men is distinct towards leadership, the divine design for women is distinct for help. Though men are created equal with women, men are created equal with women, biblical men are distinctly designed to lead, and how shall we lead as biblical men? By laying down our lives as Jesus laid down his life for us. Same thing for biblical women, that they are created equal with men, they are to use their design to help strengthen others. See, this is God's beautiful original intent. But we don't live in that world anymore, do we? No, Eden was lost. So Genesis 2 is perfect and it's good and it's so foreign to us that all those things could be, could be true because we are far removed from that reality because of Genesis 3. And in fact, Genesis 3, what we find is that the serpent slithers around the authority which God placed in the garden, which would be Adam, and he creates a doubt in Eve's mind. Let's read Genesis 3, 1 through 5. As we remember what went wrong, we cannot forget what went wrong, ladies. That there, that is a beautiful design, and that's good, but something has gone wrong. Something big. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to read that for you, and then I want to read what a pastor has uh, described what this event could have been like in the garden. His name is Ray Ortland, and I want you to just hear his words and see if you can see current temptations for women. This is what he's basically paraphrasing for the serpent to Eve. Eve, the serpent would say, I'm going to do you a favor. I hate to be the one that breaks this to you, but you deserve to know. God has a motive other than love for this restriction. 
The truth, the truth is that God wants to hold you back, to frustrate your potential. Don't you realize that God himself has this kingdom, has this knowledge of good and evil? He knows what will enrich your life and what will ruin your life. And he knows that this fruit will give you to that same knowledge so that you will rise to his level of understanding and control. Eve, it may come to you as a shock to you, but God's holding out on you. He's not your friend. He's your rival. Now, Eve, you have to outwit him. And I know this garden seems pleasant enough, but really it is a gigantic ploy to keep you in your place because God feels threatened by what the two of you could become. This tree, Eve, is your only chance to reach your potential. In fact, Eve, if you don't eat of this tree, you will surely die. You see some of the temptations that we are bombarded with, male and female, but specifically to females, of envy, of all of a sudden, he, she was fine in the garden, but when another world, whether it's real or imagined, gets set up in her, her mind, the comparison of the ideal world with the real world, the ideal world always wins out. There's entitlement as a result, and there is a lust of the eyes for Eve. Let's just read verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to her eyes. You see what she, what's happening here. The enemy is, is appealing to her eyesight. She saw it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit. She ate it. And she also gave to her, some to her husband who was with her. And he ate because he's sitting there passively. Look what Ray Ortland continues to say about this, what could have been going on in her inner world. I found these to be so powerful. What's going on in the inner world of Eve? It doesn't look deadly, does it? In fact, it makes my mouth water. How could a good God prohibit such a thing? And how could a just God put it right here in front of us and then expect us to deny ourselves of his pleasures? It's intriguingly beautiful, too, and the insight it affords. Oh, I could liberate us from dependence upon our creator. And then who knows? All right, if he finds out we've caught on to him, he'll take this tree away, and we'll be stuck in this prison forever. Let's eat it now while we have the chance. Fascinating. What could have been going on in Eve at that time? I found Ray Ortland's description of the guard to be fresh, and enlightening, especially with what the temptations are before all of us, but specifically for women. The inner world, though rightly ordered by God to help strengthen her and to strengthen her husband's leadership, has now been thrown into, into disarray. Instead of trusting the good character of God, she now doubts that he has her best interest in mind for these structures. The seed of resentment has now been sown, and it leads to the fruit of rebellion against God's ordained authority. And instead of dependence upon God, she acts out of self-empowerment as she takes, eats, and shares with her passive husband, Adam. It's a sobering truth. It's a hard reality. And all this brings shame, guilt, finger pointing, difficulty, and curse 
So if we want to know why, why things are hard, let's keep reading in Genesis 3, verse 16. God pronounces curse in, curses on the serpent and then on the female and then on the male. We read the male's curse last time, being obsessed with work. It's always going to be frustrating and difficult. Work is not a curse. The frustration that comes with work is the curse. Death is the curse. And for females, this is the curse. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Interesting that, at the, that the pinnacle of what should be a female's joy, of multiplication, of doing the thing that God said to do in Genesis 1, to multiply, to bear fruit of the womb. Not only will there be joy, but there will be multiplied pain because of this. And even in some of the most, underneath some of the most caring, uh, shepherding and caring love of a husband, will a woman feel like she's being thwarted? Like she needs to rule, like she needs to break out of whatever prison is there. See, all of our greatest relational problems can be rooted back into man's lack of leadership over his wife. In verse 17, if we read that again, it would say that. Because you listen to your wife, because you listen to the woman, you're, you're letting her lead. There's this curse upon you. All of our relational conflict problems can be rooted back to a man's lack of leadership and a woman's lack of trust. It's everything is in disarray. We're in a chaotic world now. It's not as clean as it was in the garden. That's the truth. That's where we are. So what should we do? We lean back into God's good design for you of suitable helper, of one who provides strength where the other one is lacking. But there's like rapid fire application that I need to put before our women, the females in our church. First one is this, and I'm leaning on this council of females that I've had throughout the week for these things, but first one is this, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. When you let in all the blogs and books and posts throughout the week, when you let those things in, uh, just be careful. Be careful because there's a, there's, a, there's a theme, and I've been reading many of them this week. There's a theme of entitlement. There's a theme of empowerment. And just because it's popular does not mean it's fruitful. Guard your heart. Number two, discern the truth. The thing that Eve wanted was wisdom. She already had it by God's good design. She already had the level of wisdom that God wanted her to have, she already had. And yet she continued to want more. She wanted to have the level of God himself. Good news, ladies. You have the wisdom of God in you. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's also known as the helper. You hear that. It is the nature of God to be a helper. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom lives in you, dwells in you to help you have the wisdom that you lack. He wants, God so wants to freely give you the wisdom that James 1 says all you have to do is ask him for it and he will give it to you. If you think you lack it, all you gotta do is ask. 
You don't go into holy huddles and figure out what you're supposed to do about that person that wronged you and just pray for me because I'm about to go do this. Or maybe I'm not ever going to go do this. Maybe talking to you is enough. The wisdom comes from asking God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, He is your helper. Number three, hold fast to your identity in Christ. Over and over and over again do I hear women failing to understand who they are in Jesus. Your identity does not come from your side hustle. Your identity doesn't come from whether or not your kids eat organic or not. Your identity is the daughter of the king. Purchased by the blood of the lamb. Indwelled by God himself. Don't give in to anything else. If God did all that to secure you, to purchase you, to redeem you, to bring you back from the dead, he is not going to leave you. That's his promise. Even to the very end of the age will he be with you. Will we hold fast to our identity in Christ. Ladies, fourthly, lead. Oh, we're going to ruffle some feathers now. Here we go. Lead. The church is hemorrhaging women because they don't think that you have any place in the organized church to actually lead. I had lunch this or coffee this week with someone who's leaving a church position after 15 years. Why? She doesn't feel like she can lead anymore in the church. She's going to go start a nonprofit, go do her own thing. Why? I think that's like, go do it. But at the same time, I lament over church leadership not giving voices to women where God allows them to have voices, which is basically everywhere but pastoring, eldering. So when we put before you deacon candidates in the spring, in January, there will be females on that, like in that line. We see females being deacons, Phoebe being one of them, Romans 16, 1, if you need to go and look it up. So we can't wait to put before you these beautiful representations of female leaders, within the kind of design that God would allow us to have. So if you're feeling that you're not empowered or you're feeling entitled to something else outside of these boundaries, that is the fruit of Eve and not the fruit of the Spirit. We need men and women who will take hold of leading others, not just to the shallow end of the pool, but into the deep waters of being anchored in Christ through life-on-life life, life discipleship, through reading theological books. Like Charles Spurgeon, he's a great guy to read. It shouldn't just be dudes that are doing it. Let's the ladies get, gather around a book study by Charles Spurgeon. Go read a sermon on that in your growth group. Or Jonathan Edwards, for that matter. I can't understand half of what that guy says, but Stephen will tell you. <laughs> read theological books. Go through a systematic theology of Wayne Grudem. Go, go, let's, let's, let's go dare to lead others like Titus 2 describes for us to leave. That men would lead younger men and women would lead younger women. Let's lead each other into maturity in Christ. Let's let Phoebe be our guide. Let's let Priscilla, who along with Aquila, went and rebuked our man Apollos when he was teaching bad things. Yes, she was included. Let's see that happen. Let's see that bear fruit in our churches. So single ladies, and I don't know how many we have in here, but let me just speak to the few that we do. Don't wait on a man to figure this out. Don't wait on a man to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. That's, that's demeaning. That's devaluing. Instead, lean in 
Get with some older ladies that will help you, encourage you, provide strength to you to get out there and maybe start discipling. And for those of us ladies, I'm not a lady, but for those ladies that are here who are in less than ideal situations, your man isn't the man that we talked about two weeks ago, or maybe he's absent, or maybe he ran away a long time ago, or maybe you did some things a long time ago that pushed him away. All these less than ideal situations, however that has played out in your life, I will say this, lead in such a way that respects your husband. Don't use his lack of leadership, his lack of interest in spiritual things as an excuse though, to not push forward. Lukewarmness is a sin the last time that I saw in the Bible. Not persevering, not pressing through, not Giving up is a good thing. Matter of fact, it's, 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 it's an encouragement of the scriptures that we would not give up. That means we don't quit. That means we press ahead. We persevere to the end. Even when we don't feel like we have the support that God so wants us to have at home. So don't use his lack of interest in spiritual things as an excuse to pursue maturity to pursue Jesus, to pursue his call upon your life to make disciples. Now, men in the room, y'all are gonna get mad at me in this, but like, if this bothers you, step up. Uh, for real. If you're a dude in the house and you just got offended by me encouraging your wife to lead out in maturity, step up, lead, fail for the glory of God. Take a risk. Dig in. All statistics will tell you is this. It is not what the wife does in the home that bears fruit for your children. She can do everything that she can do. But the, but the kids in the home are going to follow the maturity of the male. Statistically speaking, that's just kind of how it fleshes its way out. So like you faithful women, be faithful. You keep being faithful. You keep praying for your husband. And at the same time, you keep praying for your kids too and pray that they take more of your faithfulness than the lack of faithfulness from your husband or ex-husband or whomever else. But man, we've got to step up. Our legacy is at stake. I love hunting and fishing too and I love camping too, but at some point, like you can't go and worship Jesus all the time on a kayak or on the pier or on a boat or in a deer stand. At some point, they're following our rhythms as men. And so let us set a good pace for our families. So women, you got to lead, right? You got to get out there and lead. Take some risks in submission, in respect to your husband if you're married, or in respect and in submission to the leadership that you have around you, which leads me to, I don't even know what point this is at this point, but to, to the biblical women, what do they do? They lead, but they also submit to authority. Now, ladies, there is an epidemic of unsubmissiveness going on. It is a beautiful thing. You know, it's God-honoring still to submit to authority, male or female. It's God-honoring still to trust the authority that God has put over you. And if you are a married woman, it is your husband. It's also your local church together with your husband. So would you... Submit, would you trust? That's the other word that comes along with that. 
Your church was put in a place not for your comfort, not for you to realize your dreams, oddly enough, but to shepherd you into a place of maturity, to shepherd you into the image of Jesus, to push, to encourage, to light a fire when needed, to help those who are weak, to bring around, to, to, to rebuke those who are idle, to come around you in whatever way necessary to lead you to a fuller and deeper experience and understanding of Jesus. Your husband is the same. Would you submit and trust your husband as long as he leads you to Christ? And if he's leading you into sin, don't follow him. There's some younger voices in the room, so you may have to explain this later. But if your husband is leading you to a place of sin, let's just call it in intimate ways, don't follow him. Find the help you need from the trusted voices that you have, which would include me, the elders, and the pastors of this church, to help you. Do not follow your husband into a path of sin. That's the appropriate time to not submit. Instead, come out from under. Go find help. Submit to other authority where he is lacking not in disrespect, but in ultimate respect, that hopefully you see him restored into Jesus. That will be hard. That will be almost impossible. But may you have the courage, the spirit-filled courage to do such a thing. Finally, watch your mouth. God dwells within us and has made us his temple. Ephesians 2 would tell us this, right? That we would watch our mouths together. When we speak poorly of another brick in God's temple, we are taking hammer and chisel and we are tearing it out. When we get together and we share prayer requests, men or women, when we share prayer requests that is gossiping or slandering against one another, we are taking hammer and chisel against the temple of God. And God does not look at that lightly. And friends, neither should you. Be the awkward person that goes, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. You need to go talk to that girl. I'm not comfortable with hearing this anymore. I think you need to go talk to that guy. And then all of a sudden, you're not the sounding board anymore. You're encouraging them. You're not trying to make it awkward, but you're encouraging them to trust Jesus, to go and handle conflict the appropriate way. And no longer are we chiseling and hammering at the temple of God. May we watch, and that's not like a, a, a demeaning thing to say, watch your mouth. Instead, like pay attention to what's going on and coming out of your mouth. Because Jesus says that's what's in our hearts. So we do these things for the glory of God. And I leave you with this question. What would this part of the world look like if we held on to this kind of design? Male leadership, good biblical male leadership, laying down our life for the good of others. What would, what would this look like? Female leadership, literally just like, as a, like a trust, supporting another where they lack strength, helping where would this world be if we lived out of this design, trusting God in these things? For females to be fit to help build strength into others, wouldn't there be more encouragement both given and received? Wouldn't more men and women reach their potential 
Wouldn't more partnerships and entrepreneurs and small business owners be started to go and pursue their God-given dreams so that the kingdom will come on in Richmond as it is in heaven? Wouldn't these things happen? What kind of impact would this make in our neighborhood if our females were, ident- were, were rooted in their identity? Not in their identity to compare or to gossip. How would it change your circle of friends if you invited others into the deep end of the pool, past talking about how she's dressed or the look on her face or competing against another's airbrushed image of one another online? Instead, rooted together, following the spirit of truth and grace. What would happen if we trusted God in these things? Let's pray. Let's ask him. Father, we need you. We cannot do these things without you. I know this. I have been misunderstood today. I have been assumed upon today. And so have you. And that is not the point. Said, I pray this out loud in front of my brethren and my sistren to know that when we hear the word of God preached in such a general way, not specifically, but generally, this is males and females, we're bound to get annoyed, we're bound to get offended, we're bound to get uh, assumptive, entitled. I pray, Lord, that we would, that the spirit of truth would lead us into the truth in these things. That Holy Spirit be with us, counsel us, correct us, convict us where we need it, so that we can live out of these identities, both as biblical male laying down our lives and biblical female helping strengthen the other. Would we, would we live out of these truths? Would we trust you? That's, that's what it comes down to. Look, this is the Word of God. We've just, we just bathed in it for however many minutes, 40 minutes. Now, would you help us get out of that bath, dry off, and live a life that is honoring and trusting of you? Would you open our eyes to the path set before us? And would you help us trust? We love you, and we're grateful. In Christ's name, amen.